Welcome to the Actually Connecting Podcast, where emotions, consciousness, and connecting come first. Okay, and we are ready. Welcome to the Actually Connecting Podcast. Thank you for jumping on and kind of jumping through the hoops and making this all happen with me. Yes, it's been an adventure. (laughs) So you have worked with Fortune 500 CEOs. You worked with Tony Robbins. They've described your program and what you do is truly extraordinary. And you really help people succeed and perform and innovate and expand the boundaries of how their brain works. Is that kind of sum up? I mean, you're the founder of the BioCybernaut Neurofeedback Institute which is a mouthful, but it's something that I think really claims and shows the credibility on. You've spent a lot of your life focusing on a scientific method in a lot of ways to help people be their best selves. Is that right? This is true. Will you kind of digest and uh, decompress what you do and who you are a little bit about yourself? Well, um, um, German American, all the uh, great uh, uh, grandparents came from Germany. Uh, one side was farmers, the other side was uh, uh, German, uh, Lutheran, Missouri Synod, Protestant fundamentalist, uh, physics major. Uh, and in the fall semester of my senior year in physics at Carnegie Institute of Technology, I came, I had developed a friendship with a grad student at a nearby university in Pittsburgh. It was called Duquesne University. And he was studying phenomenology, uh, the structure of experience and reading uh, Merleau-Ponty. And uh, there were a bunch of French Jesuits that had come over uh, to teach phenomenology. Father Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was uh, one of my uh, heroes. I'd read The Phenomenon of Man. But all of this, as as great as it sounded, was uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't grounded. It, it, there wasn't anything to measure. Uh, and then, so I come out of the student union, uh, and uh, there's a big hand-painted sign, every letter a different color, and it says, Dr. Joe Camille will talk on brainwaves and consciousness. And the time was 10 minutes hence, the building, Margaret Morrison College, was just across the tennis court, and I didn't have a class that hour, so I went, and that changed my life because Dr. Kimi and I, uh, I was fascinated by the conversation, by the talk. I was the only one from the engineering school that showed up. It was all <laughs> painting and design students, and um, in the, so we corresponded. Meanwhile, I went to the library every spare minute in the library reading everything I could find about brainwaves. And uh, so when I graduated in June, jumped on my Triumph motorcycle, rode up into Canada, crossed continent, down I-5, and then off at San Francisco. I reported to Joe's lab, volunteered as a research subject, and had three consecutive days of the most incredible experience I'd ever had, brainwave feedback training on my alpha. Very primitive, one channel, the middle of the back of my head, one three digit score, a torn speaker sitting on an orange crate in the corner of the closet, which was the uh, 
training chamber off a bedroom that housed a gigantic Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-15 mini computer. Uh, <laughs> and it was state of the art. Mm -hmm. And uh, when my alpha would get big, the torn speaker giving the audio feedback would fuzz out. But instead of being annoyed like an audiophile would have been, I just took it as information and I merged into the fuzz, the audio fuzz. And my alpha just went higher and higher because it took me out of concepts, out of words, out of even uh, thinking. And uh, so it was so much fun. I went back on the fourth day wanting more desperate to have more, uh, but they weren't doing any studies. However, I'd learned how the lab worked and uh, Joe Camilla's uh, California girlfriend, Joanne Gardner worked there. She and I had become friendly. And so I went to her office, asked her if she would uh, take me downstairs, put the few electrodes on me, plug me in and let me play. And she was agreeable, did this. And then went upstairs got involved in her work, forgot I was there. Later lunchtime came, she and nine other members from the lab went out to a 12 course Chinese lunch. And in course number 11, she goes, oh, oh my God. <laughs> she remembered <laughs> you know, somebody still cooking in the chamber. And so they all piled back into Paul Gorman's VW camper bus, raced across town, ran up to the building, uh, raced inside, ripped open the door of the chamber and interrupted the late stages of a most incredible adventure, um, which was the genesis of uh, Mount Cybernaut. Yes, I did university research. I became assistant professor of medical psychology in the psychiatry department at UCSF. I wrote and won and then directed a large federal grant entitled anxiety and aging intervention with EEG alpha feedback. And uh, when uh, Reagan was elected, uh, he basically shut down, fired about 70% of the in-house staff at National Institute of Health and said, everybody go private sector. Well, mm -hmm. my research had already been recognized by the UC Human Subjects Committee as sufficiently valuable to the research subjects that they allowed me to charge in the totally subsidized university setting $3,000 per training, per one week training, and which I used to buy equipment. And so uh, I'd been doing this work for a long time. And at one point uh, partnered with Foster Gamble uh, from the Proctor and Gamble lineage. And we did a company called Mind Center. They leased the BioCybernaut technology for a while. And now BioCybernaut has expanded. There is a BioCybernaut Institute uh, running trainings today in Germany, in Bavaria, Germany. Uh, the Canadian BioCybernaut is sort of uh, uh, frozen in time. I uh, uh, sold the building in Victoria, British Columbia, and moved inland uh, across the Rockies to Bragg Creek, bought a new property there. But then COVID hit and everything shut down. So mm -hmm. the uh, Canadian BioCybernet is kind of like in suspended animation. Mm -hmm. But we have Sedona here, which is a global HQ, and uh, we do trainings and uh, do research. Uh, develop new technology, uh, 
do scientific studies, analyze data, do publications in international journals, and just generally uh, have a lot of fun helping people to get high and drop their baggage. Wow. Um, what is, there's a lot of questions that came from that. <laughs> and I, so thank you. Thank you for walking me through your experience and kind of how you got started in all this process. What is You're your welcome. goal for this? Like oh. when you, I mean, I, you, I know you're passionate about it, obviously, because you've mm -hmm. dedicated a lifetime in a lot of ways. Yeah. What is, what's your goal out of all of this? Uh, well, how many people on the planet have not yet had the benefit of this awakening? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so there's the goal to reduce suffering and expand awareness, uh, increase functionality, increase joy and happiness um, as much as possible for as many people as possible. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> and that's what your program does. Yep, absolutely. And th th there, when you say program, the entry level uh, is, you could think of it as Brainwave 101. It's called mm -hmm. Alpha One. But there are 24 levels of the Alpha training. There's an advanced uh, series of trainings uh, relating to Theta Brainwaves. There's 24 levels of those. And there's even a more advanced level uh, called Delta Brainwaves. And there's 18 levels of the Delta training. So alpha has 24. Mm -hmm. Theta has how many? 24. 24 as well. And then delta has the 18. Right. And there's off-menu things like shared feedback. When people have done at least the alpha one training, then they can go together into the chamber with other people, one or more other people, and uh, you know do the Vulcan mind meld. Literally can mm. get on the same wavelength while making beautiful music together. Mm. The music being the feedback tones. Mm -hmm. Wow. And they see each other's scores. At one point, I trained two army intelligence officers. I was just about uh, to ask. <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel John B. Alexander and Lieutenant Colonel uh, James McLaughlin, who was interesting because he'd actually died in Vietnam in a helicopter crash. It was a documented case of being dead, being out of body and, you know, picking up veridical information about, you know, which way the friendly lines were, and then going back into his body, being rescued by his uh, uh, pilot who had left the burning helicopter and was just took one last glance before disappearing into the jungle, knowing the VC were on the way. And uh, he saw the guy move his arm. So he went back, rescued him, hit him in the jungle. The VC came by within yards, you know, cause thick jungle looking for survivors didn't find him, but he told his buddy which way the friendly lines were because after he died and went out of body, he could see where the friendly lines were and his, his pilot didn't believe him, went the other way and didn't get picked up for two weeks. Wow. Um, so it was an interesting example. Uh, and John Alexander, who was a director of, uh, on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences at the time, uh, was studying. And so the two came, they did alpha one in separate chambers. Then they did alpha two or alpha one shared rather in the same chamber. And um, they wouldn't let me do shared feedback with them because they had high security clearances and I had none. And they were worried about, you know, telepathic leakage of information. As it turned out, they did have telepathic exchanges and 
John Alexander, who rose to the rank of colonel subsequently uh, in Army Intelligence, wrote a book called The Warrior's Edge, and in it dedicated a full chapter to their two weeks at BioCybernaut, and he confirmed, now this is with the imprimatur of U.S. Army Intelligence, that the BioCybernaut shared feedback training allowed secrets to slip between these two Army Intelligence officers. Wow. So it was a form of telepathy or mm -hmm. so, yeah. 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 Information non In, nonverbal information. Nonverbal trans informational transfer is what you call it. And that led to my being able to train two 12 man teams of US Army Green Berets a couple years later on a secret army base. And that was wild. Um, are, may I ask, are you the one who was actually doing the training for the binaural beats and the contact? protocols that went into remote viewing? Um, we do not do binaural beats. In fact, I consider them borderline dangerous. Wow. Um, and here's why. Yeah. If you were an ecologist, you would be very concerned about invasive species. If you got a two pound African toad on a Hawaiian island, pretty soon all the ground nesting birds would go extinct. So invasive species are a real problem. Well, as a brain scientist, I'm worried about invasive frequencies. And when you do binaural beats, there's almost no way that, well, certainly none of the existing uh, technologies that do binaural beats measure what brain waves are indigenous to your brain and do binaural beats on those. No, they just arbitrarily pick a frequency, which is like walking through a glass flower garden in jackboots. You shatter everything you touch as you march to the beat of your binaural beat. And so these are non-indigenous frequencies and uh, may in fact do a lot of harm. Uh, and in fact, you know, for example, if you strapped your left arm into a machine that worked it back and forth, that would not build your biceps the way holding a weight and you moving your arm doing curls, for example. And so uh, it, it's possible, the, the alpha generator is deep within the brain in the thalamus. There are pacemaker cells there, uh, tens of thousands for each hemisphere, about 60 to 80,000 per, per hemisphere in the brain. And uh, so they run 24 seven, whether you're awake or asleep, urging the brain to be an alpha. Well, when you come along with binaural beats, that's like splashing the surface of a pond uh, and, and setting up, maybe setting up ripples. But do those ripples have anything to do with the deep source? Mm, probably not. And it may be a frequency that's not good for you. Wow. Also, when we, when we look at, we do, we do uh, brainwave feedback, of course, and we monitor with polygraphs. And it's entirely uh, likely that people have slightly different frequency of alpha at different places on the head. The occipitals may have a different frequency than the frontal. And when you come along with a binaural beat, you're imposing a regimented, uh, almost fascist kind of control on the brain. And I don't like it. Wow. That's, you're the first person I've heard say this. And it's cool to hear. I apologize well, for interrupting. I'd love to continue with the story yeah. in the general and we'll, we'll come back. Okay. So you meet with these 12 generals and they bring 
two teams in to meet with you. What happens? Well, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, no, go I ahead. Said, no, but with the Green Berets. Green Berets. We, I ran, yes, I ran two 12-man teams of U.S. Army Green Berets who were in training on a secret army base. And there, what did... the, there was a general involved at one point, General Bert Stubblebein, who was a three-star general. He was actually the head of army intelligence. He's the one who sent or allowed to go um, John, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Alexander and James McLaughlin. Uh, and subsequently, uh, after he was out of the military, uh, General Stubblebein came and did uh, the alpha training at my training center in Palo Alto that I ran with uh, Foster Gamble. What did they discover during that training? Oh, well, <laughs> um, the um, details of uh, people's experiences have to uh, remain uh, private. Of course. Uh, but I will speak about another retired general that, that I trained. Um, his name was Henry. And he was um, 88 years old. And he came to train with his 87-year-old girlfriend, Flora. So it was Henry and Flora. And uh, they were an absolutely remarkable couple. We talk about age reversal. Remember that I did the federal grant, uh, Alpha uh, Anxiety and Aging Intervention with EEG Alpha Feedback. On day five, when the two of them came out of their chambers, 88-year-old General Henry picked up 87-year-old Flora, his girlfriend, and swung her around in a circle, and then was threatening to throw her over his shoulder and run up and down the stairs. And I said, Henry, I'm not sure that our insurance will cover that. Maybe you could wait till you get home to do that. So you're seeing a connection between mind, body, and soul through this process. And it's happening and all three processes. Mind, body, emotions, and spirit. Yes. Uh -huh. Body, emotions, and spirit. And in fact, uh, at one point, uh, I realized I needed to take, it, was, it turned out to be a tw about a 20-year detour in my career to learn how to measure uh uh, and deal with emotions, both conscious and unconscious emotions. Um, I had from my very earliest research in, uh, at Carnegie uh, Mellon uh, uh, and later continued at UCSF, uh, I had used mood scales uh, before and after to measure the shifts in subjective state. It turned out to be crucial for me to understand how to debrief and interview people following their session to know. And we, in the university, we gave these mood scales six times a day uh, before and after, you know, key pieces of the segments of the training. Uh, but at one point I decided I would computerize this rather than giving them a clipboard and a, you know, sheets of paper and mm. pencil to mark off their moods. And when I computerized it, I, also added in um, because they do it while they're sitting in the chamber and their brainwaves are being recorded. I figured I would use more of the information available. And so now the computerized mood scales that people take multiple times each day, usually not more than three times a day and uh, in the premium double and only two times a day in the single trainings that we do now. Uh, but the computer is able to detect 
unconscious emotion. And so when you're wanting to coach people to, you know, do forgiveness on whatever, you know, had traumatized them in their life, a lot of times these traumas have been, they're so painful that the coping mechanism involves forgetting or stuffing it into the unconscious where it adversely affects your happiness and your performance. Um, but, it, you know, you, you're not, it's not accessible to your uh, consciousness. So I developed, the, I wrote this computer program uh, based on the mood scales that I'd been using and uh, gathering extra information um, because, you know, now people were, you know, wired up while they're doing their training. And the mood scale program can detect the existence of unconscious emotion, both negative emotion and positive emotion. Well, if you have unconscious positive emotion, that's a real waste. It's like having, uh, you know, hundred million dollars in a bank account and you don't know the bank account is there. You don't know it's in your name. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, it's useless. And similarly with the negative unconscious emotions, they undermine you. They're like a ball and chain. They sabotage your performance, your success and your happiness. And so, you know, if somebody's taking the mood scale and the word is angry and they put zero, because they, what they do is they rate themselves, you know, from zero, one uh, is a little, two is moderately, three is quite a bit, and four is extremely. They rate themselves and they put zero on angry, but the computer goes, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> then when it's time to go over the mood scales, the trainer will say, well, you know, you denied feeling any anger, but the computer thinks that that's probably not accurate. So what's the story? And so then, you know, a tear comes out of an eye and the lip trembles a little and then the story tumbles out. And then out in, in that story will be uh, perpetrators, uh, characters that could then very usefully be forgiven to free the person up from whatever this trauma was. And so it's an amazing, you know, like if I tell you, I give you a shovel and I say, here's a seven mile long beach and there's a buried treasure somewhere you know, gold and silver and, you know, it's all yours. You just take the shovel and you go find it. Well, you could spend years digging holes in that sandy Mm -hmm. beach. Whereas if I give you a metal detector and you go, you know, cruising down the beach, maybe even in, you know, your uh, beach mobile, uh, until you hear uh, the metal detector goes off, then you stop and confirm. And then that's where you dig. Well, that's the value of this mood scale program because it tells you where to dig. Where's the gold? Where's the silver? Wow. Within the human brain. Yeah, within your emotions. Exactly. And then when you obviously when you're experiencing negative emotions, your alpha drops. And when you're experiencing positive emotions, your alpha goes up. So negative drops, alpha positive, positive raises. And it turns out that forgiveness can only, it's only effective if it's done under conditions of rising alpha. If the alpha is steady or dropping, don't even bother. It's not going to be effective. Uh, we have, well, George, you know, the Gallup poll, one of the most famous pollsters in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, when Sir John Templeton of the Templeton Foundation was alive, uh, he and George Gallup were very good friends. And periodically, uh, uh, Sir, Sir John would ask George, hey, why don't you do another poll on forgiveness of Americans? And so George would do that every few years. And I had the mm, privilege of reading the details of one of these. Um, it turned out that 
on a scale of zero to extremely, 80% of Americans felt that forgiveness was extremely important. So then Gallup asked just those who knew it was extremely important if they could do it. And a full 85% said no. Wow. This is, these are the people who knew it, the 80% of the Americans who knew it was extremely important. 85% said they could not do it on their own. Not even God's help was helpful for these 85%. In fact, even prayer did not correlate with effective forgiveness. Of the Now, George Gallup didn't ask about the biosevernon of the training programs. <laughs> uh, but of the things he did ask about, there was only one thing that was found to be correlated with effective forgiveness, and that was meditative prayer. So when you put meditative as an adverb in front of any verb, like meditative skiing, meditative swimming, meditative sewing, meditative gardening, meditative meditating, what I see are more alpha waves. So with, a, you know, with his polling technique, George Gallup has told us that to have effective forgiveness, you have to have rising alpha waves. And so I've set up the forgiveness protocols at Biosavrona in such a way that you only do the forgiveness as long as your alpha is rising. Every two minutes in the alpha training, the, the musical uh, tones for the feedback stop and the uh, scores show up on the screen in front of you for eight seconds. And the numbers of the scores are color coded. If you've gone up in alpha, the, the number of that score for that part of the head will be uh, blue. If you went up so high that you got a new high for the day, it'll be green. If you went down, it's white. So as long as you're getting blues and greens in your scores, you keep forgiving. If suddenly the screen fills with mostly white, then you go to your judges and say, have I done all the forgiveness I can do for now? And if they say yes, and you celebrate, you do the love algorithm, I love you, and you say your name, I love you, and you say your name. Or if the judges say no, that means you still have the ability to do more. So you go back, re-experience the pain, and start the forgiveness over again. And that way you maximize your time in the chamber, and you only do forgiveness when it's going to be effective. Mm. It's almost like a form of EMDR, but utilizing brainwaves and these out to actually allow the healing to be encouraged. Yeah. By re-initiating by re the sequence of what happened, the trauma. Well, at Biosavernet, we say um, brainwaves rule. <laughs> so anything that you do, whether it's EMDR or LSD or have sex or meditate or chant or do Sufi dancing or brainwave feedback, anything that you do that changes your brainwaves is going to change your consciousness. So instead of looking at the mescaline or the EMDR or the this or the that as the salvation, what you have to recognize is that those are just mm -hmm. methods for changing brainwaves. Mm. And if a method successfully changes your brainwaves, then you will have the experience, maybe relief of trauma or ecstatic ecstasy or, you know, bliss or happiness or whatever it is. But the key is your brainwaves. And I honor all of those methods that successfully change brainwaves, but they're all, except for the brainwave feedback, they're all indirect. Wow. And I, and I like to go direct to the source, which is the brainwaves give people feedback so they learn how to be the master of their brainwaves, which means the captain of the fate and the master of their soul. Wow.
It's really spectacular. <laughs> Miracles happen daily at Passover. No? We're, we're, uh, we're used to them. We expect course. them and we're used to them and we celebrate them. Of course. Okay. Uh, this is amazing. Can we help define some terms just so we can help the audience kind of be on the same page and help them understand what we're talking about if people are completely lost at this point? Happy to. Okay. So let's start with, I asked this question. So there are three, what actually Connecting Podcast is all about is everyone who I bring on podcast answers three questions. The first is what is consciousness? The second is what are emotions? And the third is what emotion do you feel on a day-to-day basis? So let's start by just defining what is consciousness, and then we'll jump from there. Well, uh, we begin then with Ramdas, who said, a God defined is a God confined. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I often whimsically, uh, but also uh, deep and esoterically say, Alpha isn't what you think. Now, it's true. Whatever you think it is, it isn't. But also, if you're thinking, you're not in your best alpha. So you, you and Ramdas would also say, you cannot know truth, but you can be it. And so there's also a saying that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And so uh, I'm going to tread very lightly around this uh, obligatory question of, uh, what is consciousness? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about it. Uh, for example, in the Buddhist uh, tradition, uh, there are over 150 attainment levels, levels of higher and higher consciousness. And uh, for example, in yoga, the superconscious state is called samadhi, which is characterized by very big alpha waves all over the head. In Zen, the superconscious state is called Satori. And it also is characterized by very big alpha waves all over the head. Now, if you look at the differences in Zen and yoga philosophy, they are huge. And so you would expect that there would be differences in the responsiveness of this huge alpha in yogic samadhi and this huge alpha in Zen Satori. Remember, brainwaves rule. And so in uh, yoga philosophy, the phenomenal world is referred to as maya or illusion. And the only real reality is within. There have been studies done in India with yogis in Samadhi where they would uh, uh, be, the yogi would be sitting their eyes closed in Samadhi and they would take a pair of uh, symbols uh, from a band, big, you know, metal uh, circular discs with handles and clash them together right next to the yogi's ear, make a normal person jump. The yogi, the alpha, is unbroken. It's like you didn't even do anything because he's not any longer in the world of phenomena and senses where you are operating. Okay, so then they got extreme. They heated a a branding iron to red hot and fire, and they put it on the yogi's arm. The flesh is burning. The smoke is curling up. The yogi's alpha is unbroken. It's like... You, you're not even a gnat or a fly in his environment. And so then they would put the arm in a bucket of ice water to sort of, you know, ice cubes. Uh, and that would sort of help 
moderate the burn damage, but an average human can't handle that for more than 30, for maybe five minutes with your arm in a bucket of ice water. Well, 30 minutes later, the yogi's cruising along, just making alpha like, you know, you're not there at all. And so now what's the difference uh, between his high alpha in Samadhi and the high alpha of a Zen monk in Satori? Well, if you take a little bell and ring it by the Zen monk's ear, his alpha will block. It'll stop. It'll go away. And then it'll come back. You ring it again. It blocks, goes away, and then comes back. Now, with an ordinary person, if you were sitting there with your eyes closed and I came up and I rang a little bell, uh, the first, you know, five or six times your alpha would block, but then your brain would go, oh, it's that little bell again. It's not interesting. It's not dangerous. And so your alpha doesn't even bother to respond by blocking. The thousandth time you ring the bell for the Zen monk, it blocks. It's like the William Blake phrase, the British poet. He said, uh, when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything appears to man as it is, namely infinite. And so I think that's where the rock group, the doors, you know, got their got the, their name. And so when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything appears to man as it is, namely infinite. So the thousandth time you ring the bell, it's fresh and new in the alpha blocks. And if you look at the difference. I mean, when I was in India, I've been there several times to study with my technology to study brainwaves on the gurus. And I worked with some gurus who were, they, you know, they were brilliant, you know, illuminated beings and covered with lice. And so, you know, that doesn't matter. Whereas <laughs> you wouldn't find that in a Zen temple. Uh, the bullet trains run on time. You know, there's this exquisite, you know, emphasis on perfection of physical form which is not what you see in yoga. Somebody can be sitting, you know, in ashes or dust by the side of the road, you know, in samadhi in a state of spiritual bliss and the passers-by come and touch the guy's feet because they recognize that it's a blessing just to be in the presence of somebody in a state of consciousness. But remember, brainwaves rule. And so as you go through these, well, I'll tell you another story again about a Tibetan Lama. Now, Tibetan Buddhism used to be a mystery religion shrouded in secrecy. Uh, when I worked with uh, Joel and Michelle Levy, uh, who uh, were a part of the project with the uh, U.S. Army Green Berets, they had worked very closely with the Dalai Lama and uh, for some years. And um, we, after I trained them, uh, we then did a three-person uh, shared feedback session. And uh, Joel is by the door, Michelle is next to me, and I'm the furthest in the chamber. And when the feedback started, normally my alpha just takes off and you know goes into the stratosphere. Well, I, I felt like I was in uh, trying to run in thick, cold molasses, and everything was a struggle. And I had all these images of female sexuality and images of protection. And then after 15 minutes, that all went away, and my alpha took off and we had a great session. Well, at the end, we sat there, the text turned the lights on dimly and we talked about our experience. And I reported this, this uh, heavy, dense energy, uh, female sexuality and images of protection. And they both looked at each other with you know, raised eyebrows, but didn't say anything. Next day they came in and they said, well, uh, we've discussed it. And because you sensed the presence of the goddess, 
we can tell you about her because what Michelle did every time she would meditate, she would invoke the presence of this female Tibetan deity. Her energy field is filled with images protection and this very highly charged female sexuality. And since you experienced the presence of the goddess, we can tell you that's what Michelle was doing, but we can't tell you the name of the goddess. Okay, so at a certain point, the Dalai Lama changed the rules and he told Tibetans to be open about their practice. And so an 80-year-old Lama went to a research institute, I think it was in Dharamsala, uh, might've been somewhere in Nepal, and uh, agreed to have his brainwaves measured. So <clears throat> there's a polygraph, there's paper being pulled and there's ink pens wiggling. And in this state, the uh, Lama came up on one of the major attainment levels in Tibetan Buddhism. And in this state, he was highly telepathic. Well, of course, the pens on the polygraph just erupted into the most outrageous thrashing back and forth. And the technicians called the doctors and everybody's gathering around the polygraph going, oh my God, oh, look at that. We've, I've never seen anything like that before. This is amazing. Well, in the chamber, the Lama was highly telepathic and he was aware that the scientists were cognizing him as an object of significant scientific interest. And his ego, long dormant, probably hadn't been seen for 40 years, woke up and took pride in the fact that the scientists had cognized him as an object of significant scientific interest. And it was like it threw marbles under his feet and he tripped and fell and failed to make it across to that higher attainment level, which goes back to the question of how do you define consciousness, even to become aware of the fact that you are um, doing something special is to dampen or diminish or throw you back from completing that ascent. And so the story had a happy ending because Joel and Michelle reported that he went back to his cave or his lamasery or wherever, and he spent pretty much the next two years doing nothing but meditating, came back up on that attainment level, and this time without a bunch of scientists, cognizing him as an object of significant scientific interest, he was able to cross over and come to the next attainment level in consciousness. Now, there's a, there's a marvelous book um, called Shadow Culture. Uh, and, um, Shadow what? Cu Shadow Culture. Culture. And uh, the author uh, has a big white beard like Santa Claus. And the last chapter, uh, chapter 13, he talks about science and the science making process, which can be applied to uh, one's intellect, one's consciousness. And the, when your consciousness studies the processes of consciousness, and that's what the topic of consciousness is, it's always a transforming moment and it throws you out of whatever state of consciousness you're in and it becomes profound, it becomes transformational, it becomes mysticism, it becomes transformational. But you can no longer be the one who is studying your consciousness when you come to the point of really being consciously aware of the processes by which you are being conscious. And that's what happens every day in a biocybernet chamber. Because we are taking from the depths of your brain, the thalamus, deep, deep, deep within the brain, uh, the tiny little microvolt signals and 
boosting them a hundred thousand times to be big enough so that your our computers can read them and then we turn them into musical sounds and feed them back to you well probably almost every sound you've ever heard in your life came from outside of you it was not you you're not the car horn you're not your pet dog you're you're not your girlfriend or your boyfriend's voice um you're not any of those things and so it's hard to merge with them but the sounds that you hear in the biosimilar chambers are quintessentially you. It's a deep essence of you that's been amplified and externalized and turned into mm. musical sounds. And when you listen to it, you go through a doorway because you are now, your consciousness is being aware of the processes of the creation of your own consciousness. And it's always a transforming moment. You get a feedback loop of yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And in that, you learn how to merge. Now, I've studied deeply into the Celtic mystical tradition, and I was at the periphery for a while of an hermetic uh, mystical group. And they both know that there's a three-step process for doing a work of magic, um, or manifesting, as some people might call it. And it involves, the three steps are one, desire, two, expectation, and three, merging. The desire needs to be strong. That's not a problem for most people. The expectation needs to be confident. That is a problem for some people because they're filled with doubt about their own abilities. Uh, but so doubt is a kill. It's one of the hindrances in the Zen ox herding stories. And so you must expunge doubt and you must have confident expectation along with your desire. And then you have to merge. Well, what is merging? Well, if two rivers come together, you know, you understand merging. But what is it when your consciousness merged? When I studied with an archdruid, uh, a thrice master in the Celtic tradition, the only definition, remember definitions are bugaboo, uh, the only definition of merging I ever got out of him, he said, merging is when your awareness becomes one with the ground of being. And if you've done it, you go, Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so right on. And if you haven't done it, you go, uh, ground of being? What's that? Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, one way to understand it is the saying, let go, let God. So you get your desire strong, you get your expectation confident, and then to assert to the extent you can, when you merge, you upload your individual desire and your individual expectation so that it becomes the desire and the expectation of the it all of providence, of God, of the universe, of source, or whatever, nothing can resist that. And the deeper the merge, the more powerful a work of magic you can do. In the Celtic tradition, they used to gather into what we call covens, but then covens got a bad rap, so now they call them colleges. And it's understood that some works of magic can only be done by a full college. Well, that may be true using you know no technology, but when we do shared feedback, where you and I, for example, would get onto the same same brain wavelength, and if we have the identical intention and desire, then the effect of your manifesting ability summed with my manifesting ability would be squared because there are two of us. So we some of our our abilities would be raised to the second power. There were three of us in the shared feedback, and I've had up to eight people in one chamber doing shared feedback. And yes, they did report secrets slipping between them, telepathic exchanges. We would have then the sum of the intention to the eighth power. And so, uh, how does this scale? Well, it scales exponentially.
Wow. It's really incredible. Truly. Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction writer, said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, it makes sense. That it's just what we can't describe and define. That is the magic. There you go. A God defined is a God confined. Exactly. So it's almost the experience and the grounding of being that you are considering to be the closest consciousness that can be even spoken in words. Because once you're speaking the words, it's we lose the entire essence of consciousness. It's the marbles. Precisely. Precisely. And to give you an idea of how, uh, how, how many uh, layers there are to this, how many levels up and up and up and up, um, there is a, uh, a mystical tradition that you only get invited into when you have done the following. You have to predict the time and place of your death and the time and place of your reincarnation. And you have to have done that for 13 consecutive lifetimes and then you get invited into this tradition. Wow. Who, do we have anyone on this earth plane that's done that? Uh, when I uh, spoke uh, with uh, Jeffrey, one of the people involved with the, mm, it's one of the uh, uh, techno summits, I think they take place in uh, uh, Palo Alto. Um, when I told him this, he came for training. He was blown away because he didn't think that, you know, other people knew about this. He knew about it, but uh, he didn't think other people would know about it. So um, it's, it's out there. It's not something that you would find on the shelf at Walmart, uh, the how-to book. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's levels, or, or Drunlo, for example. Uh, the building that I'm in here in Sedona, I bought 50-50 partners with Drunlo in 2011. We formed, a, it used to be the public library of uh, Sedona. So we formed a company called the Library of Consciousness and 50-50 partners, and we bought the building. Now, among Drunvalo's uh, adventures, he, in South America, he worked with some uh, tribes, uh, indigenous people, the Arawakos, the Wewaks, uh, the Kogi. And at one point, he was taken to 17,000 feet in the Andes by a Kogi who did not speak English. And uh, they're sitting looking out you know, at the vastness uh, from 70,000 foot elevation. And uh, the, the, the Kogi is laughing because he's saying, uh, he's saying in Drunvo's mind, he's saying, I, I can understand your thoughts. And uh, so they, they, they yucked it up for a little while. And then he took him to a cave where there was something like a 3 million year old uh, Kogi floating in the air uh, and communicating with him telepathically. So uh, there's more than you'll find, you know, at your local Cinemax, uh, you know, going on. 
um, even if you go into a DARPA underground, deep underground base, you know, where they have some super advanced technologies reverse engineered from, you know, crashed and shot down UFOs, uh, there are still things in consciousness that are beyond the ability of our technology, even the advanced ET technology to, uh, shall we say, um, uh, comprehend. Can you adjust your mic real quick, just because we're fading in and out a little bit? Okay, is this better? That's so much better. Perfect. Okay. What you're saying is this consciousness of when you've got this 50-50 partner and you're going well, through. Actually, a couple of years ago, Drunvlow wanted to retire. So he asked me to buy him out. So we now have the whole building. I'm actually in the film studio on the second floor that he created for making videos. Wow. And you now, is this still called the Library of Consciousness? Where yes, you it is. Wow. Yep. And Biosavernaut Institute of Arizona now owns the Library of Consciousness. Wow. And you had two other questions that everybody's supposed to ask. Oh, my what, goodness. You've, uh, what, this is the first time on a podcast where you've, I've had my mind blown. Uh, uh, wait till you get into the chamber i'm so excited i can't even i genuinely can't even speak because of how excited i am um just a little background i have experienced remote viewing i've experienced astral projections i've experienced lucid dreaming we just had we've had robert wagner on the podcast a little while ago we talked about lucid dreaming in depth Mm -hmm. um just the other day i went to a ce5 event so we had a group of uh -huh. 65 people meditating toward love and forgiveness and just consciousness yes together and Fol following uh, steven's uh, guidelines right they did steven greer's guidelines and yep. this is the first time you know i followed steven greer just very basically but i have always been a little bit hesitant on because anytime it's kind of like what you just talked about uh, a god defined is a god confined and yes. the second you, and I feel like they've really defined what it means to connect. And that to me, you know, I, I put some walls up toward that. Oh, uh -huh. but I understand it. And to be together with a group of people following a particular set of guidelines toward consciousness, forgiveness, love, and well-being. I mean, what a powerful experience. Yep. But this is the first time I've ever heard of the depth of consciousness that has been researched, studied, and then not only that, but enhanced utilizing right. this practiced brainwave technology. Mm -hmm. Spectacular. My, thank you. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It's, uh, mm. it's phenomenal. Well, uh, since you are open to a little bit of woo, um, as uh, Cliff High would say, <laughs> um, I can tell you about a woman named Marina who bought a diamond dozen package of uh, trainings. And uh, that means she prepaid for 12 trainings, got a 20% discount. She has completed all 12 and uh, part of, so she did alpha, she did theta, and then she qualified for Delta. And I remember she was at my Canadian training center and she and I were uh, in separate chambers doing uh, Delta training and we went nine days straight. Uh, and in that, she 
was she came into contact with or was contacted by a very, very high rank of angels who all the time send loving energy to earth, to humans. But she was able to realize that the frequency of the vibration was so high that almost no humans were capable of even picking it up. Mm -hmm. And so she made a commitment to spend for the rest of her life an hour a day in meditation where she would act as a step-down transformer, where she would pick up this energy, drop the frequency down, and rebroadcast it to humans. So it would be at a frequency that more humans could actually pick up. So these are, you know, <clears throat> these are not things that are... Um, you know, on the website, for example. <laughs> mm, yeah, I understand. I understand. <laughs> the audience that you have listening right now, this is what we talk about. So this is a, this is a very positive thing. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. I've been listening to the uh, power of, or the, the law of one, the raw contact. Uh -huh. And it's uh -huh. a very similar example where three people have gotten together and in essence meditated to a frequency where they can be in contact with these, these beings and these yes. beings then download information. Have you personally experienced downloads of information? Oh yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, and, and in different, uh, different uh, types in different states, of course, <clears throat> for example, uh, if you want to uh, read in the Akashic records, you need to go into theta brainwaves Uh in like, for example, Tony Robbins said after his alpha training, well, he said it's one of the most valuable things he ever did in his life. But beyond that, it publicly, he was saying, there's no problem that can't be solved in alpha. So I've reached out to him and said, first of all, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Tony. But, <laughs> but, but actually, that's not entirely true. It, it's mm -hmm. true for a certain class of problems. These are problems where at some time in your life, you came across information, maybe it's now forgotten to your consciousness but you came across all the information that's needed to be assembled in a novel way to solve this problem creatively now and that's great uh, the alpha process uh, is very valuable it's how much of science works it's four steps uh, the first step is pay your dues you learn the data of the field find out what the good problems are second step is incubate which you do in alpha the third step is illuminate. The illumination, the eureka, aha, I found it, happens in a huge alpha burst. And then the fourth stage is verify. You go back to your uh, desk or your lab or your bench and you test out the insight and confirm that it works. And so uh, and the beauty of alpha is that when you are in a high alpha state, all the barriers are removed to access all the information that you were ever exposed to. Now, of course, if information is painful, uh, then it'll be blocked until you do the forgiveness. We actually ask people to do something called an inquiry. It's one of the teachings of the training where you go, Alpha, show me everything I'm ready to know on this topic. Now, you don't say everything I want to know, everything I need to know, because Alpha is not going to bring forth information out of the repository if it's going to be traumatizing to you. So first you have to do the forgiveness, then you can access it. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's say in, in alpha, you have access to all of the information that you were ever exposed to and you draw on it to you know something from column A and something from column R and something from column W and you assemble it in a new way and there's the solution to the problem. 
The challenge comes, and this is what I told Tony, the challenge comes when solving the problem requires information that's not known to you and may not be known to any human in your historical time period. Mm -hmm. So then you need to go into theta brainwaves and I've invited Tony to come back for theta and he said he's going to do that as soon as he can work it in. Uh, in theta, you access the Akashic Records, which is an energetic database of all knowledge that was, is, and ever will be. There's no time issue involved. Mm -hmm. And there's marvelous stories about how people, you well, like Edgar Casey called the Dreaming Saint, would lie down on his couch, uh, you know, fold his hands across his chest, and go into a theta state. Um, and then he would answer questions, uh, solve medical problems, uh, financial problems, uh, child rearing problems, whatever kind of problems the person had, he would solve it by pulling the answers out of the Akashic records. And for people who think that's woofy poofy new age nonsense, well, all I do is I refer such people to Thomas Alva Edison, who they know is the inventor of the electric light bulb. But what they may not know is that Thomas Edison invented a pre-brainwave feedback method of accessing theta. And he pulled information out of the Akashic Records sufficient to create over 1,000 patents of new novel, not previously before known material that he pulled out of the Akashic Records. Now his method was uh, simple, uh, but, but difficult. He sleep deprived himself. He would sleep only four hours a night and typically in two stretches. So he'd sleep two hours, wake himself up, sleep another two hours. And so during the day, of course, he'd be exhausted. So when he lay down in the recliner chair in his lab with a notebook on his uh, chest, holding two steel ball bearings, one in each hand, draped over the arms of the chair with a metal pie pan underneath. And then while thinking of something he wanted to invent, he would try to fall asleep. Well, you know, as soon as he hits theta, he's going to lose postural tonus, lose his grip. The balls are going to drop with a clattering din, wake him up. He grabs his pencil and writes down in his notebook whatever little piece of information he pulled out. <laughs> and then he grabs the steel ball bearings and uh, settles back in the chair, drapes his arms over the you know arms of the chair and goes for more. And so <laughs> he was mining the Akashic Records and he came up with over a thousand patents. So anybody who thinks Akashic Records is woofy poofy new age nonsense, I would just refer them to the over 1,000 patents from Thomas Alva Edison. <laughs> so we've got, we've got the ability to go into Theta and access information that was never, never known to us before. Hmm. And so uh, that's an important uh, brainwave. And when you do that, then you have uh, the ability to create on a, 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 you know, with a bigger canvas and more dimensions. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating you say that. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've stayed up till 2 or 3 a.m. in that range. And the closer I get to that 3 a.m. mark, uh, for me, it's always been, sounds my phone, but when my phone will drop, it will wake me back up. And I will oh. write down the inventions because I'm an inventor. It, I literally have done this process, and it's how I invented one of the last inventions I did. I have never heard this well, actually said before. <laughs> uh, but is what you've just said that really caught my ears is there is this is an old way of doing it. There's a better way. Right, there is. Brainwave I don't feedback. brainwave feedback. Exactly. And we do the theta trainings in recliner chairs because of course if you were sitting up and you went into theta you'd slump Fall out over. of the chair That's and it. slide down to the floor. Right. That's exactly it.
Wow. Okay. Perfect answer to question number one. Okay. <laughs> um, before I jump to this next one, can, and I know that's, I don't want to jump in too much. Will you just help understand the alpha, delta, and theta waves? We're talking about that, and it's almost the primary conversation point. Will you just help like a really rudimentary discussion on what those are and how you would define those? Well, there's a spectrum of brainwaves, just like there's a spectrum of light. If you take a shaft of sunlight and pass it through a quartz prism, you will not be surprised to see a rainbow emerging on you know, the table or the floor or the wall, wherever. And uh, the visible spectrum, the ones that our eyes can see, go from red, uh, which is the slowest uh, frequency in the visible light, uh, in the longest wavelength, up through orange and yellow and green and teal and blue and violet, which is the highest frequency that we can see. And of course, then it goes into ultraviolet and x-rays and you know, faster things that we can't see. And on the slow end, if you slow things down below red, eventually you come to radio waves, which are very long uh, wavelengths. Uh, and so we have the same thing if you take a channel of brainwaves, replace the shaft of sunlight with a channel of brainwaves picked up, amplified off somebody's head, and then you pass it through <laughs> quartz, silicon, uh, mm. crystals, mm -hmm. uh, computer chips that do mathematically what a quartz prism does physically with the light going through it. And so you break the brainwaves down into a spectrum. The red end of the spectrum, the slowest are the delta, or actually, I've actually been experimenting with uh, epsilon brainwaves, which are below half a hertz. And uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, there's some, uh, there's not much data out there on epsilon and lambda brainwaves. Lambda is uh, like at the very, very high end, uh, 100 to 200 hertz. Uh, wow. But Higher. there's some evidence that epsilon brainwaves allow people like, you know, Wim Hof can, you've probably seen pictures of him sitting, wearing a, a swim trunks, sitting on a, a glacier or a field of snow, mm -hmm. naked, except, you know, for that uh, swim trunks and uh, meditating and, and, and not freezing and not getting frostbite. And so there's some suggestion, I haven't seen any you know, controlled studies, but there's some suggestion that epsilon and lambda brainwaves enable people to do that kind of stuff. Well, I've been uh, beginning uh, experimentation with that. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, wow. And so delta, we, lambda is basically zero to half a hertz. Delta is typically half a hertz to four hertz, and it's broken into high delta and low delta. We have separate filters. They have different generators in the brain and, you know, respond differently. And then faster uh, up the color spectrum uh, is theta, which is four to seven. Uh, classically, alpha begins at eight, and there was no name given to the gap between seven and eight because all of the physiology textbooks up to about the mid-50s reported that there were no human brainwaves between seven and eight. Now we see that. This is the Schumann uh, frequency range. The Schumann resonance of the planet is typically 7.83. 
unless the ionosphere is disturbed in some way mm. by harp or by uh, incoming CME from the sun, coronal mass ejection. Um, and so we have Schumann, seven to eight, which we measure. Uh, it's uh, the pulse of the planet. The person I've seen who had the biggest uh, Schumann brainwaves uh, owned and ran four large recycling companies in Europe. Uh, very mother earth friendly. And then alpha is eight to 13. Uh, beta is 13 to 25. Some people say 40. Uh, and then gamma goes up from there to about 100. Maybe the high end of gamma might go up to 120. And then we have lambda, which is 100 to 200 hertz. And so these are, of course, slow com compared to, uh, you know, electromagnetic waves. Uh, but they are for biological tissue. That's the range. And it turns out that we start people, Brainwave 101 is the alpha one training because alpha is a bridge state. It's available to normal waking consciousness, but also at the higher levels, it is an euphoric high energy state and can take people right out of body. They can do astral travel. They can do out of body experience. Uh, they can, um, totally bliss out in alpha they can go into samadhi or satori uh in alpha and uh then uh we have other trainings that we do that are more advanced so how was that for like oh, intro? absolutely perfect great is that categorized under physics or is that some other sort of study uh, is what categorized under physics? It, that just that chart that that description of how I've just never heard that before, where you oh. match up the colors to the actual frequency of the brain waves. It, what is the study of that? Well, of course, uh, you know, studying the spectral decomposition of light, for example, by a prism, uh, that would be optics, which would be a, a part of physics. Uh, and I, I, I love analogies. Mm -hmm. And so th this is an analogy that yeah. I created. In it's fact, beautiful. on day one of day one of a training, uh, I show people a picture of a shaft of sunlight going into a triangular quartz prism and then coming out with a spectrum. Now, this picture is interesting because it's the only one I've ever seen where the artist attempted to impose or to add uh, 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 waves sinusoidal waves. And so, of course, the red, the wave is longer, wavelength is longer. And as you go up the color spectrum toward violet, the waves become faster. And so, you know, it's a visual aid to help understand the relationship between what we perceive as color and the frequency of that electromagnetic radiation that we call light, visible light. Now, wow. the relation, very, very few people uh, are aware of or study epsilon or lambda. Uh, and I know no one who identifies the gap of, um, other than biocybernauts, who identify the gap between theta and alpha as Schumann. Uh, mm. And let me say a little bit about that. Uh, you know, as part of my research, when I went to the library after getting turned on by Joe Camilla's talk, uh, I discovered that uh, all the uh, textbooks on brainwaves defined uh, delta zero to four, theta four to seven, then a gap between seven and eight, uh, then alpha was uh, seven, I'm sorry, eight to uh, 13. 
uh, beta was 13 to 25 or 40, and gamma was above that. Uh, but uh, there were no human brain waves uh, that people were seeing on their polygraphs in the range of seven to eight. They did not exist. Hmm. Okay, so why? Now they do. So uh, if you look at the date at which the physiological textbook stopped having a gap there, it was about the mid 50s. And in the West, that's pretty much when television intruded into most every home. And so it's possible that by, uh, you know, zombieing out in front of the TV, that people may have been uh, sort of set into or, or to, to make uh, uh, these uh, Schumann waves. Now, why would that not have been in the genome, the human genome? Well, let me give you a, a speculative answer. Let's say we have a proto-human walking across the African savanna. And uh, uh, up north, uh, over the Nile Delta, there is a lightning storm taking place. And that lightning storm is injecting a spray of frequencies into the cavity resonator, the spherical cavity resonator, which consists of the surface of the Earth and the bottom of the ionosphere. Well, as you know, with organ pipes, the bigger the pipe, uh, the lower the frequency of the note that will resonate there. A piccolo, tiny little you know, version of a sub flute can make higher pitch notes than a flute. And a big tuba with a lot of length can make lower notes. And so uh, the cavity resonator between the surface of the earth and the bottom of the ionosphere uh, will allow frequencies at the Schumann resonance, typically 7.83 hertz, to propagate without attenuation for thousands of miles. And so here's this hominid, hapless hominid, walking across the African savanna, dangerous place. You know, there's hyenas and leopards and lions and all kinds of critters that want to eat him or her. And uh, then there's this lightning strike. And if that hominid's brain functions in, the, in that frequency, the poor hominid may be thrown into a bliss state and immobilized and fail to hear the snap of a twig, which indicates the approach of a hungry leopard or hyena, and that hominid's genes don't make it into the next generation. So there is a simple evolutionary way to explain how the gene for operating the human brain in the Schumann frequency range would have been successfully deleted uh, uh, over generations. Now, we don't function in a world where, you know, there's very many hungry leopards or hyenas or lions. And so it's not uh, uh, inimical to our survival to operate our brains in this range. So now people are starting to do that. Not everyone does, but some people have a little bit and some people have a moderate amount and some people have an enormous amount of energy in what I call the Schumann brainwave frequency, seven to eight hertz. So that's a, that's a unique contribution, I believe, of biocybernaut to electroencephalographic science. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So you've just analogied this so well, and thank you for doing that, kind of, because it really does lead perfectly to, in your opinion, what are emotions? How does emotions oh. fit into this big picture of the body chemical that's working every day. Well, remember, the, the, the simplest way to understand just about anything is to say brainwaves rule. I've actually trademarked. Rule. Okay. I've trademarked. Brain, brainwaves rule, trademarked. 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, obviously, if you have, uh, well, let me give you an example. Uh, I told you that I wrote one and directed a large federal grant. When the uh, site visit team came to my lab to investigate, um, they we, they said they were ready to approve it, but they wanted me to add a condition. They wanted a sham or false feedback condition. Uh, they were concerned that just sitting in a chamber having these uh, sounds would in and of itself um, raise alpha. And so they wanted me to record the sounds of one person and then in the control group, play this false feedback uh, to someone else and just see what happened. And I, I just laughed. I said, first of all, uh, I, I don't want to do anything that's uh, not honest or, you know, mm-hmm. upfront. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I said, besides for that, it simply won't work. If you're playing somebody else's sounds, person, uh, person A's sounds are being played to person B, all person B has to do is open their eyes, which would cause the alpha to stop, the sound to stop. And if the sound kept going, they would know immediately that it was fake. And mm-hmm. so it won't work. It won't work. And they said, well, our giving you this grant is dependent on you having some kind of a condition uh, that would address this concern. So uh, being quick on my feet, I said, okay, well, how about if I do beta feedback? And, uh, and, and they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, beta is usually uh, a tenth of the amplitude or maybe a fifth of the amplitude of a person's alpha. So I'd have to run three days of baselines before we ever started the feedback to find out what the person's average alpha beta ratio was. Then on the days where you would want me to do the non-alpha feedback, I'd be doing beta feedback. The sounds would sound the same. And I would mathematically scale up the amplitude of the beta waves so that it would be a match roughly to what the person's alpha numbers were. So when they switched uh, partway through one week, uh, alpha one week, beta, or another group would do it in the reverse order, beta first and alpha, the other one would do alpha first and beta. On the, when they would switch, the numbers would be about the same. And of course the sounds would be the same. And so they liked that, they liked that. And so I, only one time in my life, uh, did I do beta feedback. And what I and I was measuring member mood scales six times a day. And what I found was that when people successfully raised their beta, their moods turned very negative: anger, suspicion, hostility, bitterness, sadness. And so, remember, brainwaves rule. Mm -hmm. And and when the alpha goes up, then anger, hostility sadness, um, unhappiness, it just goes away. And positive emotions like friendly and vigor and clear thinking, uh, joy, happiness, they go up. So brainwaves rule. And now there are some, and and it even goes into personality traits because when um, uh, I, I was able to demonstrate at the highest level of scientific peer review available. There are two general science journals in the world. One is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, Science. And in England, they have a journal called Nature. And uh, they're the two top 
general science journals in the world. And I succeeded in getting a publication in science on the seventh day of the seventh month of 1978. It was published. And I showed that in high anxiety males, when alpha went up, two different kinds of anxiety went down. One was emotion. In other words, uh, state anxiety, transient, like you almost get hit by a bus, you jump back on the curb, your heart's pounding, and you feel anxious. The other type of anxiety is a long-term personality disposition, which is there all the time. And uh, both of these kinds of anxiety were reduced by raising alpha. Now, this freaked out the professors in uh, my, when I won the grant, I was federal grant, anxiety and aging intervention with EEG alpha feedback, I was promoted to an assistant professor of medical psychology within the August psychiatry department. Shortly thereafter, the department chair issued a decree that all the faculty shall assemble for an annual faculty retreat. And each member of the department of psychiatry that professor would have to get up on stage and talk for 10 minutes about the research. Well, I was doing research, giving alpha training, and I was giving mood scales to measure emotions. And I was giving personality tests like the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, MMPI for short, granddaddy of all personality tests. It was standardized in 1945 on 10,000 Americans. And it's so good. I mean, it has three lie scales. It has one lie scale to detect faking bad, has another lie scale to detect trying to fake good, and there's another lie scale which just generally detects, you know, malingering and not telling the truth. And some of the clinical scales, which include anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, mania, social introversion, things like that. The clinical scales, some of them are actually adjusted up or down depending on the lie scales. So it's very, very reliable. And I could show an MMPI profile to a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they could totally read the person's needs, uh, telling me things that I'd only learned by working, uh, you know, very, very closely with them over a seven-day program of uh, brainwave training. So it's a very good measure of personality. It doesn't measure positive aspects, but it, in the dysfunctional realm, it very clearly and carefully distinguishes schizophrenia from anxiety or from a psychasthenia or from mania and depression or Oh, those kinds of things. Okay, so um, I am standing on stage. I'm showing slides of the MMPI profile from before they started the training to right after, maybe seven days or eight days apart. Now, <laughs> I'm seeing massive and profound changes. The, the, the clinical scales, as I mentioned, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, mania, depression, anxiety, uh, they're on a percentile scale where the normal range around 50% is um, uh, 30 to 70%. And uh, I was seeing people, showing people who were in the 98th and 99th percentile of these clinically uh, you know, significant psychopathologies. And seven or eight days later, they're in the middle of the normal zone. Well, this so freaked out the psychiatrist that I'm only halfway through my talk and two senior bearded members of the psychiatry department have jumped out of their seats. They're shouting, they're shaking their fists, uh, waving their fingers. I was literally shouted off the stage because <laughs> what happened? They were experiencing fear. They couldn't ignore mm -hmm. that this young whippersnapper, the newest member of the department was going to disrupt 
good word these days, would disrupt their august profession because they had never seen personality changes like that, that much and that quickly. For most psychiatrists, personality is considered to be stable over the adult lifespan. And if you want to do 20 years of psychotherapy, maybe you can tinker a little bit at the margins with some of the worst of the things. But let's not even talk about changing core dimensions of personality. And that was what was happening when my research subjects were with feedback, learning how to change their brainwaves. When you change your brainwaves, you change your identity. Frederick Dodson in his book, Parallel Universes of Self, says that identity is synonymous with reality. So it's no mystery. People come to biocybernaut training and they walk out and then before long, they're a millionaire or a true millionaire or whatever, or that suddenly they're happy. Their reality changes because their identity changed. Their identity changed because their brainwaves change. And so we have a science which is almost indistinguishable from magic. And so moods, what are emotions? Well, Ramdas said, actually his teacher, Bhagwan Das in India, when he was starting to complain about the rigors of their uh, journey across India barefoot, uh, eating from the street vendors, he said, oh, I feel terrible. And Bhagwan Das said, emotions are like waves. Watch them disappear in the distance of the vast calm sea. In fact, if you deconstruct the word emotion, it's never stable. It's always going to be in motion. Emotion is changing. Mm -hmm. And it's changing because your brainwaves are changing. If you can stabilize your brainwaves, you can stabilize your emotions. What emotions you feel and what personality you manifest are a function of your brainwaves. And when you can change your brainwaves, you can change your emotions. You can even change core dimensions of your personality. And how cool is that? Because when you change your identity, your reality changes. Mm-hmm. Everyone wow. through BioCybernaut becomes an applied magician. Shh, don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it on the down low. <laughs> Fascinating. I, I've had this theory, and I'm curious to know if you can verify or, or kind of add some insight to it, that with schizophrenia comes almost where there's a form of living in two dimensions within this reality that we're currently in. Is that something that you've experienced where you're seeing them function on different wavelengths and that wavelength is, is higher, low? You know, how, how does a schizophrenic wave brainwave show up comparatively well um let's go back to the mmpi which has a scale called sc which measures schizophrenia now you know there's obviously more sophisticated and more recently evolved uh, subcategories of schizophrenia but if we just take the um sc scale on the mmpi and look at where on the head does alpha have to go up in order to reduce SC schizophrenia as measured by the MMPI? It's very simple. It's the occipital regions of the brain, both the left and the right occipital alpha increases there, will profoundly reduce the SC measurement of the MMPI. And so you could say for shorthand that this would reduce schizophrenia. Fascinating. So with the brain- Paranoia. 
On yeah. the other hand, paranoia is reduced by alpha increases at C3, the left central. And on the flip side, when uh, C3 goes up, people go into profound states of trust. On day six of the training, we read the trust in the Heart Sutra from the third Chinese patriarch of Zen. The whole point of which is to encourage, maybe even exhort people to have done with judgment, comparison, evaluation, right and wrong, that kind of thing. Wow. When all things are seen equally, the timeless self-essence is reached. Make the slightest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to know the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Mm -hmm. Direct quotes from the Trust in the Heart Sutra. Wow. All is all in comparison and expectations are the key to unhappiness. Say that again? The concept of kind of what you're saying, all is all. We are uh -huh. all one, all is all. And when you recognize the that oneness with all of us, within ourselves, with everything else and all of us, that is, in essence, a form of our best being, our what yes. you said grounded being. And then the second part being expectations and, and comparison being the key to unhappiness. <laughs> well, you know, uh, yes, um, the Buddha has uh, four noble truths. First is all life involves suffering. Second is the cause of suffering is craving. Uh, the third noble truth is when you uh, give up craving, you end suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Buddha's method of ending craving. We have a biocybernate. A technologically advanced and uh, accelerated way to do that. But yes, uh, uh, the mm, suffering is caused by craving. Wow, I've never heard that before, and it's so true. <laughs> Four so noble truths of the Buddha. Wow. And again, when the timeless self, when all things are seen equally, the timeless self-essence is reached. Make the slightest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. Wow. You've traveled the world to discover just kind of enlightenment in some ways, in a way to find enlightenment and what happiness is in some sense, peace. Well, it was very important, I think, for me to have gone to India several times to study brainwaves on a wide, wide variety of, of beings. Um, I'll share one story. Um, it was the team that I went with uh, was under the direction of Mako Stewart and a, a shall we say, colorful, uh, a, a Texas oil millionaire, multimillionaire. He owned um, uh, Stuart Petroleum and Stuart Title and lots of other things. He's now passed. Um, and uh, it was his fifth trip there. And he was there with a film crew. 
and they were making a documentary on the tantric gurus of India. And I was brought in for the fifth journey. And so they had an in-tourist guide and uh, who'd been with them previous trips. And so, you know, they would go out into the villages and find, you know, saintly beings and then bring them. I was set up with my technology in a big suite in uh, the Oberoi Hotel owned by the King of Nepal. It was uh, in Bombay. And these, uh, they would bring in these yogis. And, uh, you know, like I said, some of them were covered with lice. And uh, one of them, uh, I was putting electrodes on and I saw a big open wound. He had a lot of dandruff, but I saw a big open wound on his head. So I went to my bathroom and I came back with a bottle of iodine and I was dabbing the iodine around the wound. And that fumes of the iodine disturbed a big beetle that was feeding at the open wound. Mm. And the beetle ran off through the thick hair. And then I looked more closely at the dandruff and each little piece of dandruff had six legs and was slowly moving. So this was, shall we say, you know, an interesting journey. Uh, but another time uh, they brought in this uh, yogi and uh, when he walked in, it was like the room filled with light. It was like the sun had just come up. He had a beatific radiance and uh, I was in awe and uh, you know, he didn't speak any English. We had a translator. He spoke Hindi. And um, his story was that um, when he was a little boy, like three years old, um, his parents died. And so he was given as an indentured servant to the local holy man. And uh, he was raised by the local holy man. So from three years old, he's meditating. And then when the holy man uh, that died, left his body. He he took over, you know, should we say, the practice. He was the you know, the local holy man, and so he's uh, he has this beatific radiance. He's brought in, and so we I put my electrodes on him. And everything was explained, translated in Hindi. He had a childlike uh, had a childlike uh, curiosity. Uh, he wanted to know something about the technology, and uh, my ticket to India had been I had just built. Uh, in 1978, the first trip to India was in 79, I had just built the world's first microcomputerized brainwave feedback and analyzer system. I had the best analog filters in the world, the sharpest, the flattest. And then I made it this with the, uh, I bought a little kit and uh, with the help of uh, Carl Keld put together uh, the world's first uh, microcomputerized. We use a Motorola 6800. And uh, then uh, Mako Stewart heard about this through Brendan O'Regan, who was a research director at the Institute for Neurotic Sciences. And so Mako wanted me to, he was in India, he wanted me to bring all my technology over there. Well, I ended up with 20 crates of equipment because I was warned to take along whatever you need to fix things and spare parts and whatever, because you won't be able to get it there. So I'm now explaining this to this yogi. How do you explain a microprocessor to a yogi uh, who, who you know, probably didn't even read uh, you know, in his language? So I said, well, it's like a little brain. And uh, the microprocessor, it's a silicon brain. And uh, so he wanted to see it. Well, uh, the, the central processor board, I had wire wrapped. And it's a technology that's fairly fragile. You have uh, a perf board, you have uh, sockets into which you plug the chips. The sockets 
uh, legs stick through. And then you take a wire and with a wire wrap tool and you wrap it around one pin and then you run it across to the, where it's supposed to go. And then the entire circuit board is hand assembled with wire wrap. And I had, it was fragile. I was not about to open it up to show him, but I had a spare. Uh, it's a 40 pin chip, Motorola 6800, an 8-bit microprocessor. And it was in uh, conductive foam, so it's CMOS, so it wouldn't, you know, it's vulnerable to static, so it's in conductive foam. And so I bring it out, and he's petting it, and you know, saying things in Hindi, petting the 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 brain of the of the of the uh, system. So I wire him up, and uh, he starts to meditate. And we're not doing any feedback; we're just recording. And the guy has a lot of alpha. And then the next scoring period. Two minutes later, comes up and his alpha is higher. The next scoring period is higher. 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 Well, uh, you don't see this in the stock market, even in a rising market. You know, there's ups and downs. He didn't have any downs. His alpha only went up. There was a couple of epics where one of the channels had a score that was the same as the last, but never down. In mathematics, we call this a monotonic increase. And after about 15 minutes, you know, my jaw is in my lap. I'm going, I'm like, what's going on here? He's just going up and up and up and up and up. He kept going. And at a certain point, he opened his eyes. There was a flash of light came out. I could see it. And he spoke in Hindi. It was translated. He said, well, the light is getting so bright. If I go any further, I won't be able to come back and tell you about it. And so I realized he could have gone right out on a Maha Samadhi. I would have had a tough time explaining a dead body connected to my wires, connected to my equipment, plugged into the 400 volt power they use in India to the Indian police. How do you explain this dead body? So I thanked him for coming back. Wow. He showed you the process of dimensional travel and you yep. recorded it. Yep. Wow. Monotonic increase of alpha. Did that change your entire existence in that moment? Well, remember that, uh, uh, well, I guess I didn't tell you this, but uh, when I was forgotten in the chamber, uh, I remember I went in there, I'm a just graduated with a degree in physics. Uh, I'm a Protestant fundamentalist. Uh, I, I, I have no idea what meditation is. Uh, I could probably spell the word, but I didn't know what it was. And so now I'm having out-of-body experience. I'm flying around the universe. I'm having ego integration. I'm encountering just corporate entities. Uh, <laughs> and this was quite a lot. And then I had an encounter with the unmanifest, which I didn't understand at the time. But when I studied Celtic magic, then I, I learned what had happened. So it, it, the image was like being in the front seat of a roller coaster car that's going up and up and up, ka-chug, 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 the scores are rising. I had a order of magnitude rise uh, in uh, my alpha uh, in that fourth session there in the Camille lab. And when it got to a peak, all of a sudden the metaphor was the roller coaster went, you know, zooming down. This is, of course, exciting. Now in Chicago, in high school, uh, they had a roller coaster called a cannonball, which uh, after the first big climb would plunge down into a tunnel. 
So you're going down toward the ground, 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 getting closer, closer, and you're not going up, you're not turning up, and people start screaming, and then they go into a dark tunnel, and then the people really scream. And so uh, it, it was like that. I went into I went into the nothingness, where it was absolute non-being, uh, and later was explained to me as being the unmanifest, the source of all creation. And so I I had that experience. Uh, it was terrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as the fear came up, uh, you, know, I, you know, I left that place. I left that state of being. But I was forever altered by that uh, deep encounter with the unmanifest. So it's like, you know, samadhi, satori. I mean, I love it and I encourage it and I celebrate it. Um, but it's like, it's like part of the picture that I was mm -hmm. shown or that I became. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, like people say, well, aren't you excited about? And I go, well, I'll be, you know, I'm happy for it to happen, but I, I don't get excited very much about very many things. Fascinating. Which leads me to my next question. What is the emotion you feel on a day-to-day -day basis? What do um, you experience on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, <laughs> Um, uh, like, like others, I have, um, ups and downs. Uh, in fact, um, in, uh, December, uh, we, uh, we have a training center in Germany. Uh, the last time I had been there was in February of 2002. Uh, and then, you know, things sort of, you know, shut down. So I went over, I was planning to go over in, in uh, December. We were fully booked. December from the Christmas training, which is December 26th through January 1, through all of January, uh, uh, through all of February, and through all of March, we were fully booked. So uh, I noticed, I'd made my reservations, and I noticed that I was uh, feeling and occasionally, rarely, occasionally expressing irritation to people around me. And this is not me. This is, uh, you know, people in, in, on my team will say, this is, this is not how Jimmy is, not irritate, irritable. And so after three days of this, I go, wait a minute, something's going on. What is it? So then I brought to mind the emotional hierarchy, which is at the bottom, apathy, then sadness, depression, then anger, then fear, then joy. So what I'm experiencing is anger. So what that means is there must be some fear. Mm, what could the fear be? Well, it didn't take long to find out. I did a little inquiry. Um, I was fearful that if I went to Germany, that there might be some kind of change with the airlines or whatever, where uh, it would no longer be possible to remain uh, without the inoculation. And so uh, I was afraid because I wasn't going to go if there was any chance that I would have to be inoculated to come back injected. Um, and so uh, I mentioned this to one of my uh, dear friends who had a fantastic breakout into a massive theta on day five of his alpha training, profoundly changed him forever. Uh, and he's from Serbia originally. And he said, well, Jim, don't worry. I have some friends in Serbia. They have a private airline and we will fly you back, uh, you know, without having to get any injections, if that is the case. And so uh, we, uh, the COVID police came 
and tried to shut us down. There was a nosy neighbor who was jealous and lost his job. And so I brought them in. I explained what we were doing and they left. Then the next day, two more officers came back wanting to shut us down. And I brought them in and, uh, you know, bathed them in love and showed them what we're doing. And they left. Well, that apparently was not uh, what the officials wanted. So the next day, which happened to be day five of the training, about 10 at night, uh, doorbell rings. I go there and there are eight police people, <laughs> four big guys and four very tough looking women. One of the women was English competent. She said, we are empowered to go and drag the people out of the chambers. And I said, well, you know, that would probably be pretty traumatizing. So let's shut down in a more orderly way. So we were shut down and I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen. But on uh, New Year's Day, uh, I was sitting in the office, and Saima, uh, Her Holiness uh, Saima, uh, called me. Uh, she had done the training uh, the year before. And she said, Jim, you've got to get out of Germany right away. And so uh, she broke a 10-day uh, silence retreat in order to call me because um, she was meditating and on the inner plane she realized I was in danger. So I called the airline. I'd flown into Zurich. I called the airline uh, and uh, the next left at six the next morning. Arrived at the airport about eight thirty. And uh, as I'm checking in, the lady at the counter says, "Well, you know, you're really lucky that you changed your reservation because starting in two days, we're suspending all flights to North America." And I go, "Oh, that's interesting." Wow. And so. Uh, you asked about the question was, you know, daily emotion. I had felt irritation, traced it down to fear. And I told you what the fear was. And so as soon as I was aware of the fear, then, you know, the emotions changed. But um, uh, I'm often an experience of uh, uh, sort of conscious non-duality. I can remember one time I had done a, a session, a tune-up session in the chamber and I was uh, very much, yeah, uh, the, the idea of having an emotion means you have to objectify yourself. There, There's me, and there's the emotion, and I am feeling that emotion. Well, but if you're just in a state of being, mm -hmm. you're not aware. You're not aware that you have an emotion. So the mood scales, I'm taking the mood scales at the end of the session. And... I realized just about all of them had to do with duality. Like, are you angry? Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you joyful? Are you curious? Are you, you know, what are you? And and so I was saying no to pretty much everything. Now, the mood scales, remember I said they can detect unconscious emotion. I wrote the program. So I, I, I know this. And uh, I got an eight sigma on the word whole, W-H-O-L-E. So even though I had denied it, uh, the computer wasn't going to let me get away with saying I didn't feel whole. So, wow, and you consider not conscious non duality, conscious non duality, yeah. And, 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 if, and if somebody if somebody interrupts, you know, my flow or whatever I'm doing, say, How are you feeling? It's like kind of, kind of like a surprising question, like, Well, 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 I don't know, let me <laughs> let, let me, me go back, inquiry. That, <laughs> let me... yeah, let me do a, an analysis check. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. <laughs> But there's but there's a lot of happiness and joy in the background, as you can probably tell. Yeah, I mean, well, I asked you, how are you doing today, and what was your response to me? Oh, I said excellent, but <laughs> but don't worry, it'll get better. 
<laughs> Alpha waves that continuously rise up and up and up and up and up. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you for all this. Oh, it's been a delight. Absolutely. Every moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're so fun to hang out with. I appreciate you saying that. You know, this is like you. Consciousness is, and just this, it's my, it's more than a passion. It's a, uh, it's a a state of being. Mm -hmm. And I I am truly all consumed with it in many ways. So it's, I'm really grateful to have been able to speak with you and met someone else who has also taken this life journey so intentionally. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. I, I've learned a lot and it's, it's been very helpful. And it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. You're very welcome. Um, I am sure I know for a fact, I'll have you back on the podcast because I'm going to sit with this. We're going to get more questions in and I would love to have you back on the show. Well, cool. Just let me know. Absolutely. If someone wants to be a part of everything that we've just talked about, how do they get in touch with you? What does that look like? What's the process? Oh, good. Triple W biocybernaut.com and biocybernaut rhymes with astronaut. N-A-U-T is how it ends. B-I-O-C-Y-B-E-R-N-A-U-T. And a biocybernaut is to inner space what an astronaut is to outer space. The Greek suffix not means someone who goes on an adventure, biological adventure through the cybernetic calculating technology takes you on the inner adventure. Now for your listeners, I have a special gift. When they go to the website, www.biocybernaut.com, if you do slash bonus, you will be able to access and download a free copy of my book, The Art of Smart Thinking. Perfect. And in there, you can call uh, for booking trainings. Uh, you can call Kate O'Connor. She's uh, actually in uh, Alberta, Canada. And uh, she does a wonderful job of answering any questions that people might have about the training and facilitating and, you know, all the details that, you know, because you have to travel, uh, you have to find lodging and things like that. We do have an apartment we rent out for people, a full kitchen and laundry and everything, but it's eight minutes drive away. And so you would have to have a rental car if you want to stay closer because there are hotels in walking distance. That also is a possibility. Wonderful. 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 It takes a week. It sounds like seven days, seven days. Mm -hmm. And they typically start, uh, we start three a month on the third, on the 13th and on the 23rd of most months. Perfect. How many people are in each group? Well, uh, that's a good question. It can be uh, three, four, or five. Um, uh, The double where people go in the chamber twice a day is limited to three people because the days are longer with more chamber time. The single where you go into the chamber only once a day, we can have up to five people in those, in those trainings in the double. After the first session, you come out and you have lunch. And then go, go back in for a second session. We do provide dinner and energy uh, drink uh, before people go in, snacks, things like that. Wonderful. 
I'm excited to be a part of it. My wife and I are going to come. Um, we're very excited. Well, how awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. And because you gave a bonus, I have one more bonus question for you. One of our listeners asked this question. We're curious if you had a tool or technique or some sort of process to help the brain focus that they could start today, what would that look like? Um, well, there's a man, there's many depending on, for example, um, some people like to do yoga asanas, which are body poses that you hold, which both strengthen, they stretch your spine and, uh, supposedly get the body ready for meditation. Of course, I highly recommend meditation. The problem is it's slow. There's no feedback at the beginning when you need the feedback, not mm -hmm. until you get good at it, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, then you have, you know, these magical things that happen, celestial sounds and smells and visions and things. Um, but breathing exercises, uh, you know, when I, uh, studied the Yogananda meditation, the correspondence lessons. I was initiated into Kriya Yoga by one of Yogananda's direct disciples, Swami Kriyananda, after doing this for five years. Um, and there would be breathing exercises. One of the ones that uh, I think particularly helpful in centering you and calming you down is taught by Yogananda. It's three phase. Inhale to account whatever is comfortable. You want to do a slow inhale, then hold your breath to that count, and then exhale to that count. And then if you're holding a string of beads, uh, you advance a bead, because you're going to do a dozen of these. Not 11, not 13, you're going to do a dozen. Inhale to the count, hold to the count, and exhale to the count. And the goal is to slow it down as much as you can. Um, and uh, when you're counting, and uh, inhaling or holding or exhaling, uh, your mind is filled with count. It's almost like doing a mantra. So you can't be as easily bothered or distracted by whatever it is that you've been worrying about. And uh, so, I, yeah, I highly recommend uh, this Yogananda breathing exercise. Wonderful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Dr. Hart, this has been a pleasure. Truly, truly, absolutely. Thank you Damn. so much. And Damn. if you have any questions, uh, you can reach us at the Actually Connecting Podcast at danbrew.com. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Th thanks for the invitation. I appreciate hanging out with you. You're so welcome. Okay. <laughs> Bye for now. Have a great one. Like what you heard? Give it a share. Want to talk about it? Comment or like below. Have a great rest of your day. This is the Actually Connecting Podcast.